0: Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Great to see everyone here this morning. I want to invite you the, uh, to open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter three. We are continuing our series. We are in 1 Peter chapter three, and the, verse, the verses we'll be covering this morning, verses eighteen to twenty-two. But before we get into that paragraph of chapter three, I, I do want to review just a little bit of what Peter's already covered because it's really easy, especially in a challenging text like the one we have before us today, to get lost in all the weeds and to miss the true intent of the message. Um, I titled the series uh, months ago, Hope in the Midst of Suffering, as that has been the reoccurring theme every time I've read and reread the letter of 1 Peter. Um, we are told in chapter 1, Peter is writing to Um, persecuted, scattered um, Christians um, throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. And in order to encourage the church, he reminds them um, they are not alone in their suffering. And to remember Christ, remember Christ. As Christ suffered greatly, and yet it was through the cross that God so loved the world, you see. It was through the cross. And so, if you want to know how we are to view suffering, Peter says, look at Christ on the cross. Look at how well he suffered. For example, if you recall in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And so if we want to get a perspective on what it looks like to suffer unjustly, we look to Christ, who is the perfect model of suffering for righteousness sake. Two verses later in chapter 2. Verse 23, Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter, throughout this letter, takes his readers back to Calvary's cross, showing us um, Christ as the, the perfect example of suffering and justly, and through that, accomplishing his glorious saving purpose of God, which then should give believers hope and confidence for triumph of God's purpose in the midst of our own suffering. So in other words, not only does Peter want us to respond to trials the way Christ did, but he also wants us to be encouraged by the victory that was accomplished in Christ's suffering And if God can do that through the cross, what might he be doing even now in the suffering in your life? That's the intent of this passage. It isn't just sort of hold on and grit and bear it and hopefully we'll get through this whole thing, but rather there is triumph, there is victory, there is conquering in the midst of trial. And nowhere is that illustrated as graphically as on the cross at Calvary. So let's read our verses for today and, and see uh, just how far we get with uh, going through this passage. We again, First Peter chapter three. We're going to be beginning in verse eighteen. I read to the end of the chapter. Here now is the word of the living and true God. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so they might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from your flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now, if you're scratching your head after listening to this or reading that and think this text sounds like we're going in three or four different directions and they're all happening at once, you're not alone. The great reformer Martin Luther once said of these verses, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) I appreciate Luther's honesty. And uh, by the number of different scholarly interpretations to this text, I also recognize it's a very challenging text before us, but I believe with both a a careful analysis, and I spent lots of time in prayer this week, and some good old-fashioned hermeneutic humility, there's a wonderful treasure that lays here. Before us. And the overarching point that Peter wants to make is this Peter has already presented the humility of Christ's suffering and how we are to follow in his steps. But here, Peter wants to present the suffering Christ as the victor, he wants to present the suffering Christ as the victor. And I want to show you this by breaking our text down into four areas in which Christ triumphed in his death. These are four areas in which we can see in this text that Christ triumphed even in his death. First, it was a triumphant sin bearing. Secondly, there was a triumphant sermon. Thirdly, he accomplished a triumphant salvation and fourthly I want you to see his triumphant supremacy and we're going to take our time going through these it'll probably um, take us two weeks so this will be part one of the message and uh, we'll see if we can get through two of those points today but uh, let's begin with, with point number one and his triumphant sin bearing his triumphant sin bearing notice verse 18 again For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. A profound text, just let that soak in for a moment. The just for the unjust, Christ for me. Amazing. The Lord Jesus Christ was unjustly executed because he was without sin. It was unjust. In fact, Pilate was right when he said, I find no fault in him at all. That was correct. The religious leaders had to fabricate lies about him. They had to pay off and bribe false witnesses. To bring about their illegal execution. The Lord Jesus Christ was without sin. He never sinned. He was the just. He is the righteous. Dying for the unjust. Dying for the unrighteous. But in spite of the fact that he suffered and died unjustly. He triumphed in that through his suffering, it says, he has brought us to where? To God. He has brought us to God. Verse 18 says, so that he might bring us to God. And while a believer's suffering is certainly not substitutionary or uh, redemptive, the suffering of a Christian could be the seed by which God uses to bring someone to God. That's what really Peter has started with all the way back in chapter 2, verse 12. That's what chapter 2, verse 12, all the way to chapter 3, verse 11, has been all about, those three areas of life in which the Christian is to submit themselves and be a representative in order to bring that other person, to Christ. When they see you patiently enduring unjust suffering and you're following in Jesus' steps, there's an example there for us to follow. Now, as we look at this great verse, I, I want to point out several features of the sin-bearing of Christ. These can kind of be subpoints under number one. The suffering of Christ was ultimate. The suffering of Christ was ultimate. It it was the ultimate suffering. Notice how verse 18 begins. For Christ also died. I want you to please note that word also. What's its implications? Its implications is this. He also means in addition to somebody else. Who else is he talking about here? He's talking about followers of Christ. Look back at verse 17. It says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered. In other words, I'm not asking you to do something the Lord himself wasn't willing to do for you. In fact, his suffering went far beyond any suffering that we could ever imagine. How are you ask? Well, for starters, he was perfectly righteous, perfectly just, when he suffered unjustly. So when we say his suffering was the ultimate suffering, what we mean is he unjustly suffered perfectly unto death. You can't suffer any more than that, and he did so righteously. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 4, that you haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood. You haven't suffered that far yet. In other words, you've suffered, but but not ultimately. Not like your Christ has. You haven't had to give your life yet. So it says in verse 18, for Christ also died. Now in some of our ancient manuscripts, the reason why some of you have died and some of you have suffered in your Bible is that in our, our ancient manuscripts, some say suffered, some say die. You have a NIV or an ESV, for example. That's what the translators decided to go with, that suffered. And, and that's fine because the words here certainly aren't interchangeable in the terms of their meaning anyway, as the implication here is that Christ suffered to the point of death. Christ suffered to the point of death. His suffering then was the ultimate as he is the only one who was perfectly just and was murdered for righteousness' sake. Christ alone has done that for us. Secondly, his suffering was related to sins that were not his own. His suffering was related to sins, not his own. That's what verse 18 says. For Christ also died for sins. Now, when a believer suffers unjustly, it is also related to sins not their own in the sense that they can suffer from the sins of their persecutor. They can can suffer the sins of their persecutor. But in the case of Christ, he suffered for sins in a very different way, he bore our sins. And yet chapter 2 verse 22 says he committed no sin. So he lived his entire life without ever committing a single sin. He never had an evil thought. He never said an evil word. And he never did an evil deed. In fact, everything that the son did was holy and it pleased the father. And yet he died for sins that were not his own. His death paid the penalty for our sins. It was our sins that put them there. It was my sin that put him there. In fact, in this phrase, die for sins is used in scriptures to speak of a sin offering. It is used this way in Romans 8 verse 3 for which says, for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As an offering for sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. In the Old Testament, God laid this out. God said, because of your sins, you must make in an offering. You must make an offering. And God required at the time. The death of an animal. As a symbol of the need. For a sacrifice for sin. In the book of Exodus. God had his priests. The Levites. Each day offer a bull or a lamb. As a sin offering. For atonement. So Jesus Christ. In his death. Also died for sins. He also died for For sins. There's a third thing about his triumphant sin bearing. For not only was his death the ultimate suffering. Not only did he die for sins. But thirdly. He died in a unique way. Which sets him apart. From everyone else. From everybody else. How you ask? Well notice the text again. For Christ also died for sins. And then what's the next word? Once. Right. Christ also died for sins once. For the Jewish people who were very familiar with their sacrificial system, this was totally foreign and a totally new concept to them. To atone for sin, they had slaughtered millions and millions of animals over the centuries. During just one of their annual Passover celebrations as many as a quarter million lambs were sacrificed during one Passover. And they repeated this year after year after year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, and now all of a sudden Christ dies for sins once and it was sufficient for all. The book of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, listen to this, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people Because he, Christ, did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, that is why the new covenant is even greater than the old. And why Christ's sacrifice is better than any other sacrifice. It was once for all. And what does that for all mean? Does it mean for all people? No, it means for all time. For all time. Once for all time. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer explores even more of Christ's majesty as our high priest. And he says in verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one but into heaven itself, okay? So there was the temple on earth made with holy hands. That was a copy of the temple in heaven, okay? He did not enter into that one. Now he has appeared in the presence of God for us, verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the priests enter the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Verse 26, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation. Christ's death was completely sufficient to provide atonement for our sins. It was unique in the sense that it was unlike any other sacrifice and never needed to be repeated again. And actually, it was this fact that caused the Protestant reformers to no longer participate in the Catholic Mass. The Mass is celebrated as a bloodless sacrifice in which Christ is offered for sin again and again and again. And any viewpoint that necessitates a renewed sacrifice of Christ over and over is an attack on the singular once. For all uniqueness that was accomplished on the cross at Calvary on that day. There is no such thing as an ongoing sacrifice for sin or, or blood being poured out from heaven. The work on the cross, Jesus said, is finished. It's finished. Christ died for sins once for all. Both fully, completely and finally, point number four, his triumphant sin bearing was also substitutional. It was substitutional. This wonderful phrase early sums it up. The just for the unjust. <laughs> the righteous for the unrighteous. The sinless for the, the sinful. That's what he's saying here. The Lord Jesus Christ who was without sin took the place of sinners on Calvary's cross. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. And ultimately, he bore our death. Remember what it said back in chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. It was the just for the unjust. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it probably most directly. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our place, bore our sins on our behalf. That's the the substitutionary atonement. He took the judgment that belonged to us. He bore the penalty that belonged to us. He was the perfect, complete, and final sacrifice for sins. That brings us to number five and maybe our capstone point. The suffering of Christ was purposeful. It was purposeful. Not only ultimate, not only related to sin, not only unique, not only substitutional, but it was also purposeful. In what sense, you ask? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He bore our sins in his body on that that cross in order to bring us to God. That was his purpose. That was his purpose. When we say that Christ died for our sins once for all, it means that he endured and suffered the penalty of God's wrath that we deserved. Yet he died in our place and paid our debt so that he would bring us to God. Amen. Not that he died for some random people, for some random sins, but that he died for those who would believe. He endured the God-forsaken darkness of death for us, and he opened up the way to God. And we see that symbolically as God demonstrated that when he tore the veil in the temple from top to bottom and threw open access to the Holy of Holies, for immediate access for everyone. No more separation, no more priesthood. From now on, we are all priests and kings in the sight of God. We have immediate access to him. He has brought us to God. He has made the way. This was the purpose. The triumphant purpose of his death was to reconcile us to God. One last thing before we move on. Theo says that he might bring us to God. The verb that's translated, he he might bring, is actually just one word in the Greek, and it expresses the specific purpose of our Lord's action. It's a technical word that often describes um, giving someone access to something, to to someone, or even introducing um, yourself to someone. It's a funny word and in a king's court, there would be a pros gagus, and that person would be the one who was to be approached if you wanted to go and see the king. So you would go see the pros gagus, and if you convinced him that you had a just cause, he would introduce you to the king. Jesus is the official introducer. He's the official giver of access to the Father. In fact, he said in John 14, 6, that no man comes to the Father, but what? But through me. But through me. He said, I am the way. I am the way. It was Jesus Christ who came. He said to show the Father and to lead us into the presence of God. He is the only way. Remember what it says in Acts 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be what? Saved. There is salvation in nobody else. Christ exclusively performs that function. There is no other name given. In fact, when talking about the inner courts of heaven, Hebrews 6 verse 20 says that Christ has entered as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Why Christ, you ask? Because Christ is the triumphant sin bearer who died for sins once for all, bringing God's elect into communion with God the Father. But that's not all. Here's the second point I want to show you today. As there was also a triumphant sermon. A triumphant sermon. Jesus preached a triumphant sermon. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 18. I want you to notice what it says. It says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let's stop right there. What Peter means is having been put to death in the flesh, he simply means that Christ has actually died. Christ died. Christ died. He he died physically in the flesh. And the Bible is very clear, both here and in a number of places, that Christ died. We know he died because when the soldiers uh, came by, if he, had been, um, if he had not been dead, then the Roman soldiers um, would have done what to him? They would have broken his legs. <clears throat> As they did to the two thieves in order to speed up their deaths. They wanted to get them off of those cross for the Passover. But by the time they came to Christ, John 19, 33 says, they saw he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once it was proven he was dead as blood and water poured out his side. But notice what it says next. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So physically, Christ was dead in the flesh, but in spirit he was what? Alive. Now, the question becomes, is Peter talking about the Holy Spirit or is he referring to Jesus's eternal spirit, his inner self, the, the spirit? Well, without turning this into a four hour sermon, I can tell you there is uh, no definite article here which identifies this as the Holy Spirit that is missing from this. So I am going to say he's referring to the Lord's spiritually being alive. Physically, he's dead. He died on the cross of Calvary for our sins. He really died. You could kill his body, but you could not kill the eternal Christ. So while his body was in the grave, he was alive in the spirit. Now notice that phrase in verse 18, but made alive in the spirit. Question does that assume that at some point on the cross he had also died spiritually? Yep, it could. I mean, follow me here. If it says he was made alive in the spirit, then at some point, in some way, he must have died in the spirit. In other words, he must have experienced at some point some kind of a spiritual death. And spiritual def- uh, death is defined as separation from God. And isn't that what we see on the cross in Matthew chapter 27 when Jesus cries out in a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. It's the only time Jesus doesn't call God my father. He calls him my God. See, I believe in that moment we're witnessing some kind of judgment. He doesn't cease to exist because Christ is eternal. But it's obviously some kind of a separation. And by the way, even when human being dies, they never cease to exist. You never really die. Without Christ, you'll experience a spiritual death, but you don't cease to exist. We all go somewhere. Fear in Christ, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Apart from Christ, you go to a place of torment, awaiting judgment. So Christ went through some kind of a a separation from God, but it's very clear that whatever spiritual separation he experienced at that moment, it had been quickly gone because it wasn't long after that that he said these final words on the cross, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. So whatever experience of spiritual separation he had was only for that time as he bore our sins. And then after that, he was made alive in the spirit and he committed it to God. Now the point that Peter wants us to understand is this. When Jesus was crucified on the cross he physically died and where did they lay his body in the tomb right he laid his body in the tomb now while his physical body was dead his spirit was made what alive, alive. now the question is where did this living spirit go let's keep reading having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now we start to get to the interesting part. So his spirit was not consigned to judgment. He did not go to hell for three days. None of that is in your Bible. But rather his spirit was made alive, and the Bible says that he went somewhere. Where did he go? Well, it says he went and made proclamation. (laughs) In other words, he went and he preached a triumphant sermon. A triumphant sermon. So even before his resurrection on Sunday morning, he was moving freely about in the spiritual realm. All right. In which also he went and made proclamation. The verb rendered here made proclamation in the Greek, it means that Christ preached, uh, which you'll see in some of your translations, but better uh, translated, he heralded, he he proclaimed. It's not the verb, uh, you and gelizo, which basically means uh, where we get evangelism. It's how we say to preach the gospel or to proclaim the good news. That's not the verb that was used here. So it is keruso in the Greek, which means heralded. So he didn't go somewhere to preach the gospel message. It means that he went to go make proclamation or to announce a triumph. To announce a triumph, it's the word to herald. Uh, military generals and kings would have their herald announce their victory. <laughs> And that's what's happening here. He was announcing and proclaiming, heralding a triumph. What's he proclaiming? His triumph over sin. His triumph over death. His triumph over hell and Satan and demons. He went to proclaim his triumph. That's the implication of the verb here, to proclaim victory. That's what this message is all about. It's all about triumphing victorious in the midst of unjust suffering. Now, to whom did he make this announcement to? Verse 19 says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits. Who are the spirits? Well, think it through. In verse 20, Peter uses the word person. See it there? In verse 20, it says, he says uh, eight persons. There he's using the word suke. And that speaks to a, a human soul. Suke, life. Peter calls people souls. This word used here for spirits is numa. Numa. And by the way, the New Testament always uses this term, spirits, to refer to angels angels. It's never used for man without a uh, qualifying genitive. For example, in Hebrews 12 it says, the spirits of the righteous. Speaking of a a righteous man or a woman. The, The qualifying phrase will tell you who he's referring to. But every other New Testament use of spirits is always talking about angels. Furthermore, we know that angels are in view here Because down in verse 22 it says Jesus who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. And that's what Peter is getting at here. He wants to understand that Christ has subjected all the angels and all the authorities and every power which are all just these different names for the demonic kingdom. He has subjected all of them to himself. That's what I believe Peter is showing us here. Christ went to declare his victory over these demonic spirits. And where did he go to do this, you ask? It says in prison. You say, well, why would he go and herald a triumph to a bunch of demons in prison? I'll tell you why. Because ever since Satan's fall, those demons, these Fallen angels have been at war with Christ and the purposes of God. There's been great spiritual conflict between the forces of evil and the forces of good. Ask Job about it in Job chapter 1 and 2. There's spiritual conflict between the holy angels and fallen angels. Ask Daniel in chapter 10. There's that tremendous conflict between the great and mighty angel of God and the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a demon. And since the fall, there has always been spiritual warfare, and Satan and his demons have done everything they can possibly do to destroy the purposes of God in Christ. From the very beginning, when Satan knew that his head would be bruised and that he would be ultimately defeated, he has fought the purposes of God and fought against Christ in every way possible. Throughout the Old Testament, he tries to destroy the promise in the messianic line. He tries to destroy the people of God. In the New Testament, he tries to get Christ through temptation and to catapult himself and, and to thwart the purpose of God. He works through evil men's hearts trying to destroy him. How many times did a, a mob surround him in order to throw him off a cliff? So, you see, Satan himself and the demons of hell have always... Sought to destroy the work of Christ. And now he's on the cross. His life is slowly being sucked out of him. And when every painstaking breath, his body literally torn open from the scourging marks, the Lord commits his spirit into the Father's hands and he breathes his final breath the Son of God, physically died. And it would have seemed like Satan and his demons had won. One commentator wrote, the prison where these spirits were held were probably in the midst of a carnival when Christ arrived. They were probably celebrating this great defeat. Where was this prison that he went? Well, it's the word... And it is not, now listen carefully, it is not a condition, it is a location. It's not a a spiritual prison, as some would suggest. It's not some condition, it refers to an actual location. It's a place. You say, now wait a minute. Jesus went to a place where demons are in prison. How come demons are still running around now? Answer, different demons. Not all demons are in prison. Just the really bad ones. Let me give you a quick angelology. The short version. Two types of angels. Okay? Holy God-elect angels and the fallen angels. Okay, of the fallen angels, there's two uh, kind, loose and bound. So what we're talking about here then are the fallen angels, we would call demons, who are permanently bound in a prison. Okay, there's still plenty of loose ones still running around. We know that, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what, you know, demons. Demons. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. This is all the demonic realm, spiritual forces of evil. And you want to know something about the loose ones. Let me just give you a characteristic of a couple of them we see in Scripture. Luke chapter 8, verse 31, it says, of these loose demons, they were imploring him not to command them to go away. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what's your name? He said, legion many demons had entered him and they were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into what into into the abyss the abusos okay please Jesus don't send us to the abyss don't send us there they didn't want that in fact in uh, Matthew chapter 8 verse 29 they said to Jesus what have you to do with us O son of God Have you come here to torment us before the time? Son of God, aren't you off schedule? What are you doing here now? Are you going to send us to that place now before the time? Wherever that abyss is, they definitely don't want to go there. They must have dreaded their fate to be locked up, unable to move across the earth. And unable to thwart the purpose of God. They must have just hated that. So they say in Luke. Don't send us to the abyss. To the busos. And that word means a boundless. Bottomless pit. One Greek uh, scholar says of this word. It's the prison of disobedient spirits. They say. Okay. Wait a minute. So some are loose. And some are bound. But how did these ones get bound? What did they do to to get permanently bound in this place, in the prison. Verse 20 tells you, the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. Now what does that mean? Aren't demons always disobedient? Well, once, at some point in the past, they overstepped even God's limitations. Even then they went too far and when was that you ask verse 20 when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water alright so now we know when it was it was during the time of what Noah. Noah so there is a prison filled with bound demons who have been there since the time of Noah And they were sent there because they overstepped even the bounds that God had established in their own wicked ways. And it was during the time of Noah when he spent 120 years building the ark. So for 120 years, Noah's ark was the object lesson. Imagine that big, huge ark being built behind them for 120 years. It was a boat for a year. It was a sermon illustration for 120 Unfortunately, nobody listened, and they all drowned except for Noah's family. And just a footnote about that, the wickedness in the time of Noah was so evil that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it says in the Old Testament. And uh, you know what that means. That means that demon spirits were having a heyday in the time of Noah. They were running riots through the earth, doing their own evil pleasures. They were filling up the world with all their their wicked, vile, anti-God activity. And that's why God had to drown the whole earth. One commentator wrote this, Noah's contemporaries were notoriously wicked and served as agents for demonic spirits in their rebellion against God. There is no other time in history in which the conflict between faith and unbelief obedience and disobedience was as profound as the days of noah the rebellious spirits served to control the human race with the exception of noah and his family end quote they literally had possessed as it were the whole earth imagine that and those demons who had overstepped the bounds in the time of noah were the spirits that god had put into prison let me just show you a few more verses that support this conclusion Second Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, hold on to your seat. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So just stop there for a moment. Peter's obviously talking about the same thing as he brings this up again in his second epistle. There was a time when God took these fallen angels who had overstepped their bounds and he threw them into these abyss and committed them to chains of of gloomy darkness and they're kept there until the time of judgment. And again, he says it was at the time when he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he mentions another illustration of judgment. The condemnation of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Notice verse 7. He mentions also rescuing Lot. Now what book in the Bible tells us both of these stories? Genesis right? He refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Noah, both of these are in Genesis. So it seems highly likely to me then that whatever he's referring to, to these angels who have sinned, who are chained in gloomy darkness, reserved for judgment, occurred at the same time as Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Noah. Look at uh, Jude 6. Jude 6, only one chapter there. Wonderful little book still. Jude tells us which angels were put in prison. He says in verse 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Same stuff. So what was their specific sin? They did not keep to their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. So these fallen angels, these demons left their proper abode. Jude 7 explains whatever they did, it happened in Sodom and Gomorrah also. Notice verse 7: just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, that is, the, these demons, in the same way, as Sodom as Gomorrah indulge in what? Gross immorality what kind you ask they went after strange flesh hmm. do you guys remember the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah remember how Lot was living there and uh, in Genesis 19 uh, those couple angels came to see Lot and to warn him and his family of the, the coming destruction that was happening and do you remember what kind of sin was so rampant in Sodom and Gomorrah That God was going to destroy it? Sodom, homosexuality. And here are these two magnificent looking angels who now appear as men. Go read the story in chapter 19. They took on the human form to warn Lot, and when they come to Lot's house, the homosexual men of Sodom and Gomorrah saw these guys and they go crazy. And they start banging on the doors. Seeking after strange flesh. They're trying to break down the lost door. God makes them blind. And they, they're still going crazy. Jude says in the same way. These men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Were going after strange flesh. Out, outside of their domain. They were going after these angels. In gross immorality. Now. Now. Whatever these demonic spirits did to get sent to the uh, permanent prison is something like what the men of Sodom and Gomorrah did. That's what he's saying. So so what did these angels do? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter six and find out. All the way back to Genesis six tells us the answer. Genesis six, verse one. We're in the time of Noah. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. That sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he, has all, he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. That's the time it took to build the ark and then he was wiping the whole thing out. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those who were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. How do we interpret all this? (laughs) Well, first of all, to make it nice and easy, the sons of God are demonic spirits. Okay, They're the ones Peter and Jude have been talking about. It's a term used in the Old Testament to refer to angels. Who created the angels? God. They are the sons of God. So that's why they're referred to that. And what you have here is in verse 2. It says the sons of God saw the daughters of men. These were daughters of men. The angels, demons, saw the daughters of men. And they were beautiful to them. The daughters of men were exactly that. Human daughters born from mankind. The sons of God, however, were these fallen angels. The spirits now locked up in prison. Well, they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves when whomever they choose. These fallen angels who came down essentially took on human bodies in the same form. See how it's the exact story of Son of Gomorrah? The men went after the angels in Son of Gomorrah. In Genesis 6, the um, angels go after women, so they cohabited with women and produced this this kind of demonic hybrid, the nephilim. The nephilim, a term with uh, really interesting meaning, it means giants or fallen ones. and And apparently, what happened was these demons cohabitated with the woman, produced some kind of monsters, some kind of demon presents offspring. That were incredibly powerful because it says that they were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Now some people believe that the sons of God simply refers to the people on the line of Seth. And it means simply that the line of Seth, which was the godly line, intermingled with the ungodly line. That's how some will interpret this passage. But I take it that what it says here is exactly what Peter and Jude have been alluding to as at the time at the end of Noah, which connects and happens, the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, well, they attempted then to breed a sort of unredeemable race. Yeah. That's the reason God had to drown the entire earth. What did Satan want to do? He wanted to corrupt, now listen to this, the the, the human line, the line of the promise of the Messiah. If you can create a, a demon man, well then they're unredeemable. Christ as the God man has come to redeem men, not demon men. So, so so what's Peter's point taking us all the way down here? When Jesus came to the cross and hell thought, ha, ha we won. We've won. And all those demons down in the pit, and they thought that somebody was going to get the keys and get them out of there, namely Satan. And so they're down there and they're hoping and been waiting for this moment of release and Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. We'll close with Colossians chapter 2, 14 through 15. I love this as Paul's talking about the cross and he says, Christ having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I believe here Paul's referring to the exact same thing, that though Jesus had been put to death in the flesh, oh, he was alive in the spirit and Christ went to the abyss he went to go visit these perverted spirits locked in chains. And as he went down there, Christ made a triumphant proclamation. I've defeated death. And though I cannot be sure exactly what it is that he said, I'm sure it's got to go something along with what he says to John. As John sees the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John in, and when I saw him, the risen Christ, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. For I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. (laughs) And as Jesus walked out of that prison with those keys jingling in his hand, and on the heavens, declaring, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb has overcome. If you read this book, Christian, it tells you Christ wins. Christ wins. He paid the debt, He broke the curse, and now He reigns forevermore. What a Savior! What a God! If you need prayers this morning, we'd love to pray with you. You can come forward. And please stand as we sing once for all. Thank you.